Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Millerman, and this is Millerman Talks. Today, I wanted to go over an essay of mine that was published in a thwart magazine called On Being and Natural Right, The Thought of Martin Heidegger and Leo Strauss, in case you prefer to listen to it instead of reading it. And I also would like you to know that I am launching some new courses. August 9th is when the first one begins. You can find out more at michaelmillerman.ca. Two of them are on Heidegger, one on being in time and one on contributions to philosophy of the event. And another one is an introduction to the thought of Leo Strauss. The courses run once a week for four weeks, 60 to 90 minutes, and there'll be a solid introduction to those texts and to some of the main ideas that you need to understand, for example, Heidegger and his influence on subsequent thought, as well as Strauss and how he helps us to grapple with the crisis of modern liberalism. So I encourage you to go over to michaelmillerman.ca and have a look under the Academy tab, or you'll see it listed on the front page as well. If you don't already, follow me on Twitter at M underscore Millerman. I probably would have chosen something easier if I was doing it again from the beginning, but there you have it. Now I'd like to just go ahead and read you this essay. You can find it online at athwart, A-T-H-W-A-R-T dot org. On being, with a Y, B-E-Y-N-G, on being and natural right, the thought of Martin Heidegger and Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss, the godfather not of the neocons, but of the Straussians, earned his rightful place in the history of political philosophy by making that history a matter of such concentrated and profound inquiry that it is doubtful whether his feet will be approximated again before a few centuries more have passed. Not least among the many treasures he unearthed in his studies was the possibility that it remains viable for us today to recover the classical alternative to modern historicism that Strauss called natural right. We need this alternative because without it, we've lost our political moorings. We stand today before an abyss. It is part of Strauss's teaching that the first modern political philosophers effected a deliberate break from the classical tradition of political philosophy by lowering the standard of political life from the life of excellence, like you have in Plato and Aristotle, to the life of glory in Machiavelli and then security, Hobbes and Locke, or comfortable self-preservation. These changes were not inevitable. They do not reflect either the onward march of progress or the growth of the desert. They're philosophical acts of political founding. Their downstream effects may have followed with a measure of predictability and can be evaluated, so that, for instance, once the bar was lowered, it was only a matter of time before the neutralizations and depoliticizations of politics that Carl Schmitt discussed would become widespread and threaten man's status on earth as a serious being. Strauss, in short, foresaw the bad consequences of the modern teachings and believed that careful study of the classical alternative could prove helpful to us in our distress. That alternative needed Strauss's defense. Historicism and scientism, the dominant modern trends, had made it impossible to take seriously the claims of old thinkers like Plato to have discovered the truth about political things. They therefore destroyed the possibility of political philosophy. For the scientists or positivists, there cannot be a truth about matters of value, while for the historicists, there cannot be a truth for all time. Plato, on that account, is a product of his culture, and at most we can learn from him about what the ancient Greeks thought but not about the trans-historical questions, such as what is man, 
what is the good life, and what is the best regime or best political order. Strauss showed that scientism and historicism had not adequately overcome the possibility that the classical teaching was simply true. He traced the genesis of the historical attitude itself and sought to correct some of the misunderstandings that lend weight to the historicist thesis. For instance, Strauss observed that defenders of historicism found evidence for their approach in the fact that older authors share the beliefs that are prevalent in their societies. If a thinker believes a set of beliefs that happen to prevail at the time he's writing, and if it can be shown that those beliefs constrain what can appear to him as a problem or solution, then the historicist thesis of the relativity of thought to time might appear persuasive. Strauss, however, demonstrated that political philosophers often pay lip service to the prevailing beliefs of their time in order to give the impression of orthodoxy, while at the same time employing an art of writing to indicate their own heterodox beliefs, writing between the lines, as it were. Strauss provided ample, indisputable evidence from the history of political philosophy for this way of writing, and his followers have provided even more. What he accomplished with this line of argumentation was to show that the initial impression that authors are sons of their time was not proof for historicism. At most, it was proof of esotericism, in other words, of their paying lip service or it's speaking out of both sides of their mouth, which indicates a trans-historical set of problems shared by all political philosophers, including the very tension between philosophy and the political community and the risk of persecution philosophers face when they communicate their thoughts publicly, as everyone does who writes. This trans-historical dimension forms a continuous thread running under the surface of the apparently historically conditioned configurations of political philosophy. Exoterically, perhaps, philosophy appears historical. Esoterically, or between the lines, it isn't. Classical natural right is Strauss's name for the alternative he recovered and saved from unjustified oblivion. Classical natural right teaches that the best life and the best political order should take their orientation from what is best in man from the perfection of his nature. There are two such perfections, two peaks, moral and intellectual. There's no technology or approach that can guarantee the actualization of these perfections. The best life and best political order modeled on these perfections is not a dream, though. Its actualization is possible, but unlikely. It depends on chance. Modern political philosophy sought to conquer chance and to make sure that the social models it preferred could be actualized through political technologies. Strauss was especially concerned with the issue of intellectual perfection, which is private, and its relationship to moral perfection, which is social or political. Many commentators on Strauss focus on that part of his thought, and that's fair, it is central. But it's also fair to limit ourselves to his understanding of intellectual perfection or philosophy. The best life, the life that strives for the perfection of our intellect, is the life of the philosopher. Strauss often characterizes philosophy as the quest to replace opinions about the whole or all things with knowledge about the whole or all things. Philosophy is first and foremost, then, the quest for wisdom rather than the possession of wisdom. Strauss once had a famous debate with Alexander Koyev, who argued that at some point in history, in Hegel's books specifically, or in Hegel's philosophy, 
the quest for wisdom becomes the possession of wisdom, and the philosopher becomes the wise man. He's no longer seeking wisdom. He now possesses it. Strauss disagreed, and you should read that debate for the details. It's published in English under the title On Tyranny. The point here is that Strauss characterized philosophy as a quest for knowledge of all things, or even as a quest for knowledge of the essences of all things. He uses a few different formulations in a few different places, but that, I would say, is the most consistent one. Philosophy as quest for the knowledge of all things. The main issue I want to raise now is what Martin Heidegger's understanding of philosophy means for Strauss's project. Since Heidegger's understanding of philosophy differs cardinally from Strauss's, and Heidegger is not just some Tom, Dick, or Harry for Strauss, in other words, he's a thinker of the utmost importance, there have been suggestions that Strauss's book, Natural Right in History, is really something like Strauss's response to being in time, for instance, Heidegger's masterpiece. Strauss himself stated his indebtedness to Heidegger and his high praise for Heidegger in the clearest possible terms. Heidegger made possible a return to the roots of the Western tradition through his penetrating studies of the thinkers of the first beginning of philosophy, showing that they had not been refuted because they had not been understood, not by a long shot. That discovery allowed Strauss to return to the roots of the tradition of political philosophy, without which his project is unthinkable. Importantly, Strauss suggested that he had not refuted Heidegger, he said, refutations of great thinkers are not worth the paper they're written on, because like all great thinkers, Heidegger has not been understood well enough to refute. It's also an open question whether it belongs to the essence of philosophy as such not to be subject to refutation, as Heidegger himself believed, but we don't need to enter into that question here. It's enough to see that Heidegger presented for Strauss an unrefuted, genuine alternative to philosophy understood as the quest for knowledge of the essences of the natures of all things. Heidegger's thinking, by contrast, stands or falls with the view that philosophy is not, fundamentally, an inquiry into beings, quote-unquote all things, but rather a leap into what he called the clearing-concealing truth of being, B-E-Y-N-G, or in German S-E-Y-N, as opposed to the usual S-E-I-N, being like B-E-I-N-G. So what he called the clearing, concealing truth of being with a Y. I will try to explain that now. The simplest way I know to explain what Heidegger means while preserving reference to Strauss's project is through the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic. The freed prisoner who exits the cave eventually sees the most beingful beings themselves, the ideas. Earlier, he had seen semblances, images, comparatively unreal realities, not nothing, but not the most beingful beings. Plato calls the most beingful beings the ideas, and this point is so fundamental that Heidegger writes hundreds of pages across many volumes examining it, ultimately identifying this discussion in the Republic as the most fateful occurrence in the history of Western philosophy. The most beingful beings, the ideas, that which is out of the cave, are there for intellectual perception. Intellectual perception is like the eye. The ideas are like the things seen. And the sun is the source of the light that yokes seer and seen. Strauss wrote in a few key places, including in Natural Right in History, that what he called nature is equivalent to what Plato called the ideas. That suggests that the defense of classical right, classical natural right, is in some important way related to 
the presentation of the ideas in Plato. But this is precisely where we can locate a decisive gap between Strauss and Heidegger for the following reason. Plato, or Socrates to be precise, calls the sun, in the cave allegory, the idea of the good. He also says that it is beyond being. But that produces a contradiction. The ideas are the most beingful beings. And the sun, in the allegory of the cave, indicates that which is beyond being. So why, then, is it called an idea, the idea of the good? Somehow calling it an idea drags it back into being and makes it a being, perhaps the highest being, but still a being. And in a nutshell, that's the whole problem. What Heidegger would like us to turn our attention to, what he believes did not become a question for Plato or for the philosophers who came in his wake all the way to Nietzsche, was, as it were, the beyond part of quote-unquote beyond being, in contrast to Plato's emphasis on the being part. Now, that's not quite precise, but it's a helpful first step. It indicates that Heidegger was concerned about the way that beings and their interpretation in terms of being, with an I, as that which empowers them, explains them, or creates them in later theological thought, kept our attention from something more fundamental, something prior to the ontological difference, as he calls it, between beings and being. In Heideggerian jargon, that more fundamental something, quote-unquote, is the self-concealing clearing. Now, we can't quite say that it is something, since it is not one of the beings, and it is not being understood as that which is most common to them. So Heidegger says not that it is, quote-unquote, but that it, in one translation, essentially occurs, or in another, sways, the German is vest. But the idea here is that, let me go off the paper for a minute. So you have beings, and you have being, with an I, as that which is most common to them, but there's something else that he wants to put his finger on prior, in a sense, and more fundamental, prior to and more fundamental than that division. So I'm going to guess, as I go back to the paper here, I will guess that that's not totally comprehensible. What does it mean to say that being essentially occurs? as opposed to being is, what, what could that mean? So I want to resort to an image. Imagine that you're lighting up a room full of things with a light bulb connected to a dark and itself unilluminated device. You would be forgiven for forgetting that device in the brightness of the illuminated space where your eyes are attracted first to the things that are lit up and perhaps also to the light itself. Right? So imagine you're in a room, dark room, the light comes on. What comes to light is what stands in the light, the things that are in the light. That's the beings. But you will agree, the source of the lighting is not unimportant, especially not if this image is meant to symbolize, as it is, the human situation. The source of the lighting is self-concealing, quote-unquote, because it stays out of the light. and Stretching past the analogy now, it's staying away from or refusing itself to our vision, refusing itself from obviousness, creates the open space that can be lit up in the first place and in which beings can appear. Okay, so it's not just that, I'm going off the paper for a minute, it's not just that the unillumined source doesn't come to light, that's the self-concealing, but Heidegger calls it a clearing concealing. And the idea of the clearing is that there wouldn't be the space in which things can come to light. 
there wouldn't be the space in which light itself can come to light, so to speak, without the staying away or refusal of being with a why. Okay, so that's why I say it sort of stretches the analogy, but it tells you that the not being present of being with a why, of this source of illumination, generates the, the clearing where things can be. And now I return to the paper here. So the second, the second bit, this refusing or staying away, is what Heidegger calls quote-unquote clearing. This unillumined device, by staying away, clears an open space for us where beings can be. And things get a little weird here for the uninitiated, I acknowledge. We are that space. Dasein. We are that space. But this clearing, concealing dimension that is somehow related to ourselves understood as Dasein, all of that is out of the picture in Plato. We're not looking at the unilluminated device. The cave allegory puts all the emphasis on the ideas the things illuminated, even when discussing the source of light, the sun, as the idea of the good. Part of the difficulty with understanding Heidegger in terms of Plato's cave allegory, though it's important to do so, is that Heidegger's approach takes us, at times and in ways, beyond the metaphor of light. For that reason, it could be helpful to restate his position in terms that are closer to the language he uses. Heidegger prefers to talk about the ground of our existence, the sight and the moment when we experience shelter and preserve the clearing concealing of being with a why. Being with an I is that which is common to and shared among beings. Being with a why is that unilluminated source, that clearing concealing, that self-refusing that Plato failed to see. Okay, so that's being with a why. Who we are is not like an individual point but like a line or a circle. We're stretched out temporally, for Heidegger, from our always already having been, that's the past dimension that is always there with us, to our being towards death, that's our future dimension, which is always there with us. So we're always already stretched out temporally from past to future, from our being thrown to our being towards death. In that sense, we're not like a, point we're like a line and we're spatial because for heidegger seen from the perspective of the question of the meaning of being we just are the open space where being comes to be we belong to it and it needs us like a lightning strike needs a forest for causing a fire we are not a something we're more like a some place where being with a y can burn and philosophy should be primarily concerned not with the some things that are, but with the some place that we are and with the fire that burns. Okay, I'm going to get off the paper for a minute. So this is crucial to understand. It's something that I'm going to be discussing in my courses on being in time and contributions to philosophy of the event. But I want to just restate it for you in a way before I go back to the paper. You are not, according to Heidegger, in the most important sense, a body in space. Now, you could look at yourself as a body in space. You look at your fingers, move them around, pick up your feet. There's a body, and you might think you are that body, and it's in space, like in your room, wherever you happen to be, in the same way that a marble might be in a jar. But Heidegger says, 
if you look at the human being not from the perspective of his body, but if you look at the human being from the perspective of the fact that we can raise the question of the meaning of being, and that we always somehow already pre-understand, even though we haven't conceptually grasped, what it is to be, as I've said before, if you hear the words, the door is open, you're not dumbfounded when you hear is, you sort of understand it. It doesn't stop you in your tracks. But if you begin to think more about your pre-understood notion um, or just pre-understood sense of the meaning of being, you see that it's actually really quite perplexing and that we don't understand it. So we do sort of, but we don't fully. And what Heidegger says is, as we enter into the more complete understanding of being by examining ourselves in our exposure to being, again, not to beings, so it's not a biological, psychological, um, neurological explanation of what it is to be human. It's understanding the human being out of our relationship to being as such. And Heidegger says, when you do that, we learn something about ourselves that we are unlike things in the world, which maybe are just bodies that occupy space, for, from, you know, let's say, we are the space where being itself comes to be. We're the localization of the temporalization of being. Now, it's not super easy to understand, but it's important, it's just important to get that that's what Heidegger thinks we are fundamentally. And, and the reason he thinks that is because he treats the human being from the point of view of the question of the meaning of being. And that is what philosophy should be concerned with, with ourselves as open space, in other words, as the fire that burns, and with being itself as the lightning that strikes us and that needs us because we're the place where it burns. But this is very unlike Plato and very unlike Strauss. So now I turn back to the text and offer a third and final image. Let there be two arrows pointing up, one on top of the other. Okay, so two stacked arrows. Next to them are two arrows pointing down. Arrow pointing up, on top of it another arrow pointing up. Next to it an arrow pointing down, below it another arrow pointing down. The first upward arrow we can call truth A, or truth one, whatever. As the clearing concealing that configures the space of Dasein. So the base of that line is being with a Y, and the and where the and where the arrow ends, that's Dasein as the space that being sort of uh, makes for itself, or, or um, where it expresses itself. And then there's a second arrow pointing up, truth B, as Dasein's true statements about the beings that appear in the open space. So. If I say, what is truth? You might say, well, it's true that I'm speaking into a microphone in my case. Okay. It's true that I'm speaking into a microphone. That's a true statement about a state of affairs. But Heidegger has another notion of truth where we're not just looking at my speech about beings and states of affairs, but rather truth as the way in which the ground of our existence in the first place is cleared for us. So the top downward arrow suggests that we need to return from our focus on beings, including our self-interpretation in terms of the world that we take care of, to a sounder understanding of ourselves as Dasein. So it's an arrow of return, returning from beings to ourselves as Dasein. 
the the bottom downward pointing arrow suggests that we must turn from Dasein to being with a Y as the ground of our existence. Okay, so most people, most of the time, according to Heidegger, are completely focused, if they think about this at all, they're the top upward pointing arrow. They're looking out at a world of things and engaging with those things, however understood. But his invitation is to go from the things back to ourselves, as, to the correct understanding of ourselves. That's the first arrow, the top arrow pointing down. And then to understand ourselves in terms of the ground of our existence. That's the second arrow pointing down. Okay? So taken as a whole, these images help to depict Heidegger's vision. I hope. Okay? Maybe, maybe they're just confusing for you. But I hope that taken as a whole, these images, the cave allegory, uh, sorry, not the cave allegory, the the unillumined light, right? The light that stays out of the light on one hand, the um, lightning striking the forest, our being a line and being a circle, like being stretched out temporally and being spatial, the localization of the temporalization of being and this additional um, image of the arrows. I hope that all of that helps to depict Heidegger's vision. The first image suggests that there's something that does not come to light, but that is a precondition for the coming to light. And Heidegger thinks that that's eluded us. The whole history of philosophy, in fact, is a history of that eluding. And the possibility of another beginning depends on recognizing that something has eluded us and steadfastly questioning the significance of that refusal, abandonment, or staying away. The second set of images conveys human existence as an open space that receives the impress, imprint, or gift of being, with a Y, we are sheltering and preserving being with a Y. We are the forest. Being sets us alight. And the third image of the four arrows shows why truth can mean both something true about a being and the clearing, concealing of being with a Y and how one depends on the other. Now, remember, that's in order to understand Heidegger. But if we take a step back now, we can summarize the problem of his relationship to Strauss in the following way. For Strauss... Philosophy fundamentally has something to do with beings, with all the things, with natures, with essences. For Heidegger, however, philosophy goes further behind the curtain to that which is more original than beings, which is not one of the things, which is the precondition for their being beings and for our standing amidst them, exposed to the elusive ground of our own existence. More original than beings is the clearing, concealing of being, with a Y. That's Heidegger's focal point. But what does that mean for Strauss's project of recovering classical natural right? Strauss, recall, did not believe that he had a refutation of Heidegger. Heidegger, though, presents a genuine philosophical alternative to Strauss's notion of philosophy, which is part and parcel of his defense of classical natural right. So how, then, can Strauss hold his ground against Heidegger? What is the meaning of Heidegger for Strauss's understanding of intellectual perfection if there's more to philosophy than the quest for knowledge of the natures or essences of all things? I believe the key is to see the recovery of classical natural right not only, or perhaps not primarily, in philosophical terms, but rather in political terms, which brings us back to the issue of the two peaks or perfections. Although Strauss is what I call a philosophical supremacist, seeing man's perfection in philosophy, his defense of the classical alternative is not premised 
on the superiority, to put it starkly, of Plato's philosophy to Heidegger's, Heidegger's philosophy could even be superior, but Strauss would still defend classical natural right. The reason is that for Strauss, political moderation needs the ideas, and therefore the political presentation of man's highest intellectual perfection must be couched in terms of them. Scientism and historicism, and even the best of Heideggerianism, do not seem to provide man with standards for political judgment. Scientism pretends that we cannot have knowledge of the ends of human life or judge among competing values. Historicism believes standards shift from time to time and place to place, and thus makes it harder to judge political life soundly as compared to the classics. Heidegger, however irrefutably brilliant Strauss and we might think his philosophical inquiries are, also appears in all his talk of being with a Y and being with an I to overlook questions of morality and justice, a point he himself is explicit about when he writes that the knowing seriousness appropriate to philosophy, as he understands it, no longer concerns itself with good and bad, decline and recovery of the tradition, amiability and violence. In On Tyranny, which I mentioned earlier, Strauss and Koyev agree that Heidegger's approach blinds him to problems like the problem of tyranny, and that is disqualifying. But the disqualification is moral and political. It is not philosophical. At least there's reason to wonder about the philosophical status of moderation in Strauss's teaching. Strauss has more patience than is commonly known for the erotic immoderation of private philosophical thinking but he has even less patience than I've suggested for public immoderation in speaking and writing. It is safe to say that it will remain an open question whether it's possible to combine Heidegger's genuine insights with the most pressing issue for modern man, that lacking standards we face an abyss. Strauss's accomplishment in recovering the classical standards may be our only hope. Okay, that's the article. It's at athwart.org, A-T-H-W-A-R-T.org. And you see, if you've managed to listen this far, it was my attempt to think about the philosophical dimension of Strauss's recovery of classical right by juxtaposing his thought to Heidegger's criticism of the ideas in Plato, something I also wrote about as a graduate student and my research is coming out eventually, I hope, as a book. Uh, entitled Beginning with Heidegger. It's been a little bit slow getting it, uh, getting it published, but should be coming out um, almost any day now. Watch out for that. What else can I tell you? If this topic is somehow intriguing to you, you can shoot me a message, let me know, follow me on Twitter, send me an email. And like I said, I'm going to be teaching courses on being in time, on contributions to philosophy of the event. That's where Heidegger really develops this idea of being with a why conceptual thinking, overcoming metaphysics, and all of that. And some essay, some um, I'll be teaching some essays on Strauss in my course on Strauss. So you have a look at that if you'd like, michaelmillerman.ca. And if you managed to listen this far, I commend you as a long discussion and not an easy one. Uh, I hope you enjoy the work, follow me on YouTube, everywhere else. I'll post as often as I can political philosophy, political theory, and other good and great texts and discussions, as many as I can for free. Some of them will be paid like the courses. But I hope you're enjoying the work. Feel free to shoot me a message. Let me know. Thanks again for your time. Michael Millerman, Millerman Talks. All the best. Goodbye.